Well, we have a fascinating lesson tonight. I want to talk about Genesis chapter 6. If you brought your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to ask some interesting questions. Was there really a flood? Who were these Nephilim and the giants on the earth? Who were the sons of God and what in the world were they doing in Genesis chapter 6? So we're going to dive into just a really exciting lesson uh, tonight. But uh, before I begin, let me just remind you, if you have questions, text them to that number. We like to answer as many questions as we can during class, and I, we can't always get to all of them. And I also apologize so you don't think I'm antisocial. Usually after class, I like to just talk to you. Right after class tonight, I need to get back to an elder meeting that is going on, so I just don't want you to feel like I'm running away from questions about the flood. So, uh, but, in general, but text them in, and if we don't get to all of them, I'll do my best to just at least text back some answers, okay? Uh, just a reminder, before we jump in, you'll see this. For those of you that go to church here, you'll see this in our bulletin, but there we have an Israel trip coming up May 23rd through June 4th. It's a study tour. We'll see all the sites of Israel, uh, all the biblical sites, some archaeological remains, but it's also a study tour. My wife, Laura, and I will lead that. We'll have some great Israeli guides with us, but we'll also dive into the Bible in different places around. And so you, if you're interested in that, there still is some room on that trip. It'll close here in a few weeks, but there's still time to get into that trip. And so if you're interested, speak with Laura. And uh, she'll, we have some great brochures and some good information. I'm sorry, what did you want me to say? Okay, Laura will be here afterwards and answer your questions, so thanks. All right, well, let's, uh, let's dive into our lesson. Let me kind of catch you up where we've been. We talked about the creation, and God spoke about how good that was. We moved on to the next great movement in the book of Genesis, and that was the garden, Adam and Eve, the crown of creation, and the fall the rebellion, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and how that broke the harmony between humanity and God, and really between humanity and creation. If you remember, God said, Adam, cursed is the ground. It was a play on words. Adam's name means ground. So in Hebrew, it said, Adam, cursed is the Adamah, the ground, because of you. And you're going to wrestle not only with me, but you're going to wrestle with creation. Then in our last lesson, we moved on to Cain and Abel. So Adam and Eve have these children, and you know the story of the violence between Cain and Abel. And one thought I want to remind you of from that lesson is, if you remember, after Cain made his offering, and it wasn't acceptable, Cain basically said, God, I want you to accept me, but I want you to accept me on my terms. In other words, you take what I offer you. And God said, no, I won't accept you on your terms. And Cain became very angry. And God really lovingly says to him, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. And you know that Cain didn't master it. He then went out into the field, and he killed his brother, and we talked about that's how the harmony amongst us was broken. But we said something that uh, ancient Jewish thinkers thought about this. As they thought about that passage, they observed something really powerful and unique. They said, evil stands outside all of our doors. Evil stands outside all of our doors. And if we let it in, if we let sin in our house, it won't just be a guest in our house. It will take over our house. Sin, once it enters in, takes over our house. And that's kind of what we see happening as we move on from Cain and Abel. 
and we look to what leads up to the time of Noah and the flood. Cain is cast out to be a restless wanderer, to have no rest in the earth, and the soil was going to be hard for him to make a living. And so he leaves and he begins, the humanity continues to grow. And the scripture says that down through the generations, humanity continues to spread, but you continue to see sin overtaking us, the lack of harmony. And so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, here's a great little summation. It said, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. For those of you familiar with the book of Romans in the New Testament, if you read Romans, fast-forwarding now, a couple thousand years, the book of Romans in the New Testament, chapter 1, talks about this very thing. It said, in the time of Cain and Abel and Noah, it seemed like all our inclinations were to lead us to, to disharmony, to hatred and strife and murder and acquisitiveness and self-centeredness. We sort of descended into sin, into that self-centeredness. Romans chapter 1, Paul says, look around. You see the same thing in his time period. And I would say to you and to me, pick up the newspaper, turn on the news, and, and you see that same picture. What God said in Genesis 6-5 about the time of Noah is really just as true for us today. But as mankind's evil increases, God looks at it. But he saw... This one man, Noah, who was a righteous man, he was blameless among the people of his time. And here's the really important thing. He walked with God. What we would say today is he followed God. He was a follower of God, not a follower of the ways of the world. It says the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. And when he saw how corrupt it had become, he said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy this, these people and wipe clean this earth. There's an interesting little play here on the name of Noah. There's so many little Hebrew word puns here, and I just want to point out a couple of them as we go along. But one is on the name of Noah. Noah's father was a man named Lamech, and Lamech said when Noah was born, he said, this ground that the Lord has cursed it's so hard for us to make a living and we're wanderers, we're restless wanderers and we're alienated from God and we, we seem to be very alienated from one another. He said, my son Noah, Noah in Hebrew, will give rest to the people of the earth. The word Noah, his name, sounds like the Hebrew word meaning rest. And so Lamech's great desire was, Lord, can, can we find some rest, some peace here? And in a sense, God begins the process with Noah towards rest. Noah won't deliver that to people, but one of Noah's descendants will, Jesus Christ. Remember that great saying that Jesus said of, come to me all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so the legacy of Noah does indeed become a legacy of rest, something that ultimately Jesus would do. And so God says, you know what? The earth is evil, and I'm going to have a new beginning. So that sin that entered the garden, the sin that entered Cain and Abel, has so pervaded human existence, God said, I'm going to judge this. I'm going to do justice on the earth, and I'm going to judge everyone who's guilty. 
But before we talk about that flood and, and what that means, what God wants to say in this act and what he's doing with humanity, I thought we'd address, because I know this is on your mind, a curious little passage just stuck in the middle of this. When it's talking about how depraved the earth is, there's this curious passage in Genesis 6 that says, you know, when, when all this was going on, when men began to increase in number on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, and all of this lawlessness and uh, just sin pervading the world, it says something curious. It said, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were very beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever. His days will be 120 years. Now, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of olden times. They were the men of renown. And then it goes on to say, and so God then decided that he would take all this evil and judge it. But I thought we'd pause, and because I know you probably have questions in your mind, because this is one of the most mysterious verses, little passages in the Bible. And there's some interesting questions here, and the first one is this, who are these sons of God? who saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Well, as usual, no one actually knows the answer to that question for certain because the text doesn't spell it out. It just leaves this little enigmatic hint. But I'm going to give you some ideas, give you three ideas that people have looked at as to what does this mean. And I, you're going to see a couple of them show up again, by the way, when we get to the book of Revelation. But for now, let me give you a couple of ideas of who the sons of God were. The sons of God, by the way, that phrase appears in the book of Job as well. And in the book of Job, appears once in chapter 1, once in chapter 2, it clearly refers to angels. They're, angels are created beings, and in a sense then, they're children of God, like you and I are children of God, meaning we're created, and we're created by God for a purpose. Well, so are angelic beings. They're not the same as us. We don't turn into angels when we go to heaven, but they're beings created by God, and they're called in Job the sons of God or the children of God. So one thought as to who are these sons of God who came and united with the daughters of men, one thought is they're angelic beings who are rebelling against God. And in fact, in ancient times, the Jews very much had some traditions about this. They thought this is tantalizing, and so some myths, some legends grew up around these angels and them rebelling against the godly order and coming down to human beings. In fact, a couple of hundred years before the time of Christ, there are some, uh, some interesting, <clears throat> very interesting writings. These are not, this is not a biblical book. This is not inspired. But this book, written a couple hundred years before the time of Christ, and it kind of reflects how the Jews thought about this. This book says, in those days when the children of man, obviously having read this passage, had multiplied, it happened there were born to them some beautiful daughters. And the angels, here they clearly understand these sons of God to be angels, the angels saw them and desired them, and they said, let us choose wives for ourselves from the daughters of man and get, beget children. The book, this is an ancient document, that, this book of Enoch, and I want to read a little bit more to you. My kids say that uh, I'm really familiar with this document because I was there when it was written. <laughs> do, your, do your kids ever say things like that about you? That's right, I got even with them. I wrote them out of the will. 
It says, in those days the children of man multiplied in these angels. And it goes on to tell you, I'm just going to tell you the myths that built up around this. They said there were actually 200 of these angels that rebelled against God and came down and made it with these women. And it even names the leaders of these 200. And they give you the names of the angels. And it said they took wives to themselves. But they not only did that, according to this Jewish legend, they not only took the wives, they began to teach humanity some things. For example, it says they taught them magical arts. For, and they even named the angels, Azazel, the leader of this group of angels. And you'll hear that because that's a very prominent demonic name. These are, these are what become demons. Demons are angels that have rebelled against God. Well, according to this myth, there were 200 of them that led this. Azazel taught the people the art of making swords and shields and warfare. In other words, inciting violence on the earth. It says that Amasras taught them magical incantations and the belief in magic. It says that uh, Asdurel taught them about astrology and the worshiping of the stars and that sort of thing. And it goes on and on talking about how they're corrupting humanity. That Satan and his angels, Satan who is uh, an angel who rebels against God, who's corrupting humanity in the Garden of Eden. And you see other rebellious angels according to the myth that that's how they interpret Genesis chapter 6. It says that some of the angels that are loyal to God, Michael and Gabriel, whom we'll meet again in the book of Revelation, were looking down on the earth, realizing about this rebellion. The book of 2nd Enoch, another apocryphal writing similar to it, tells of, a, of an imagined vision in heaven. And it says, I went into the fifth heaven, and there I saw these 200 watchers, these rebellious angels. And I said, what's going on with them? And they said, those are the 200 princes, the 200 angels who rebelled and they descended to the earth. And there they broke their promise and they saw the daughters of men and they took wives for them. And they gave birth to giants. And those giants caused great harm in the land. And God has subjected these angels to judgment. So one of the great ancient Jewish myths was that these sons of God were rebellious angels. But not everyone understood it that way. They had problems with this idea of angels and humans then giving birth to this race of people that somehow mixed things. Others thought that it was uh, the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. And we didn't get into the genealogies, but Cain's descendants were thought to be evil, like Cain, who murdered his brother. And then Adam's other son, whom he had afterwards, Seth, is seen as, as the good son. Maybe that happened in your family. It did in mine. You know, it's like, I think they always liked my brother better. But anyway, they thought, well, maybe their descendants are intermarrying. Today, Jews and many uh, Christians as well look at this and they understand that passage just a little bit differently. They understand the passage to be talking about, when it says the sons of God, of talking more about the nobility, the kings of old. In other words, leaving the angels out of it, they thought that the earth had gotten to the point where there were great kings. Think about medieval times, kings in castles and a bunch of serfs working the field. And this story is a story of misuse of power, that these kings abused their power in sexual ways as well as other ways to take for themselves great harems, that sort of thing. So as people look at this and say, who are these sons of God? 
One thought is rebellious angels. Another is no, they're just particularly evil and powerful men who are abusing their power on the earth. But there's another interesting phrase in here. Whatever you think about the sons of God, you also have this curious phrase called the Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God went down to the daughters of men. And you kind of get the implication that the Nephilim might very well be the offspring. And so the ancient Jews thought that they were, that these rebellious angels and humans gave birth to these giants. The word Nephilim is kind of uncertain as to what it means, but it's often translated as giants, as huge people. And you're going to see that show up again in the book of Numbers and when uh, later in history, which we'll get to, when the Israelites enter the land of Canaan, they find their giants. Think Goliath, remember David and Goliath? That they find really large people who they think are related in some way to these Nephilim, these giants. Another way to, to translate that word is fallen ones. And that kind of fuels the idea that maybe these Nephilim are indeed the offspring of this rebellion of the angels in humanity. The text generally says, though, that they're mighty men, famous, renowned. In other words, they're sort of the heroes of old. And a lot of people think that this gives rise to some of the great myths. Think about the Greek myths of their great demigods and uh, Hercules and some of the other heroes might trace itself back as well to this biblical account. And something that happened, something we don't understand exactly what it's talking about, but something happened at that time period. So the sons of God, maybe angels, maybe just kings abusing their power. Maybe it's just a human thing. The Nephilim, clearly some kind of remarkable individuals that lived at that time. Maybe the offspring of the angels, maybe just very large giants, powerful people. Maybe giants in power, not necessarily giants in stature. One of the problems with interpreting a passage like this is there's so many possibilities because the text doesn't bother to give us very many details. But I think if you look at a lot of the legends, you'll find that many of them trace themselves back or link back in to this ancient biblical talk about something that happened back in the time of Noah. Well, speaking of the time of Noah, God says, you know what, I see all this evil on the earth, I see all kinds of rebellion happening, not just rebellion of humans, but maybe rebellion of the angels, and this earth is getting corrupted, so I'm going to wipe out the earth, I'm going to wipe it out with the flood. And one of the great questions that, that people have asked for a couple hundred years as science has uncovered more about geology and that kind of thing is, wait a minute, did the flood really happen? Traditional thought is that the flood is a global, worldwide flood. And did that really happen? One of the interesting things uh, to note is, is that it's not just in the Bible that you find a flood story. You find a lot of myths in, in tons of different cultures, some of them very ancient. For example, here's one. This is a tablet from, the tablet itself is only from 700 BC, but the legend, the Epic of Gilgamesh, probably heard of that, it's an ancient Babylonian tale. It's a long poem. Think like the Iliad or the Odyssey or one of those things you had to read in high school and you've never looked at again. You know, one of those big, long, epic poems. Well, this is a big, epic poem called the Epic of Gilgamesh, probably composed around 1400 BC. Think about the time of Moses, maybe. 
time that, that some of Genesis is being written down, not the time it happened, but the time that some of Genesis is being written down. And so it has a flood story in it. And the flood story is a little bit like Genesis. It's not anywhere near as clear cut. In that, you have a bunch of gods who get angry at humanity. And there's a one guy whose name is Utnapishtim. I like Noah better, but whatever. Utnapishtim, who's a righteous guy, and he builds a boat. His boat is square. Any of you are fishermen? Want to go fish in a square boat? Yeah, I mean, it's very strange. Some, if, you, if you watch the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, they're probably going to entice you by saying, ah, maybe the biblical account comes from the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think the biblical account comes from God, and the Epic of Gilgamesh is strange. I mean, but I do think that it, in my view, could very well be derivative. But one of the really telling things about the flood is flood stories occur in almost every culture. It's not just the ancient Babylonians. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, have a flood story around a hero named Deucalion. Some of you may remember that story. He's the son of Prometheus. And again, the gods all get mad at humanity, and they're going to flood the earth. And so he, too, rescues people on the earth. North American Indian tribes, South American tribes, Central American Mayan civilizations all have very different, but they all have stories about a flood. Well, some people think, some Christians think that there is indeed a global flood throughout the entire world. And I would argue that, you know what, the fact that there are flood stories, they may not all be exactly like the Bible, but the fact that they have memories of this, of a flood event in so many cultures, might very well argue that, you know what, this is clearly a very widespread thing and would lend some support to the idea that there was a global flood. Other Christians think, and there's a little bit more scientific evidence for this, I'm not saying there's not evidence for a global flood, but I'm saying the evidence is very strong, that there was certainly a regional flood in the area of Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, uh, near uh, you know, the area of Turkey and Iran and Iraq, particularly Iraq. In that area of the world where that ancient Babylonian epic comes from, there do appear to be signs, geological signs, of some kind of large water event leaving a lot of sediment there. So that's led some people to believe that, well, you know what, maybe as you read this text, it's not a, a worldwide, meaning the entire earth, but it's all of their world. In other words, it's everything. It was a massive flood in that part of the world. And so the evidence is, is a little bit conflicting. There's not really conclusive evidence. But I do think it's very interesting that you see flood stories from cultures all around the earth. Sometimes we get a little fixated on, well, which one was first and which one came from the other. I'd really rather focus on the idea of how curious it is that there are so many. And that the Bible, unlike many of the others, says there's a global flood and here's why it happened and here's what God was doing with it. That's something you don't find in the other myths, but you do uh, see that they're out there. So, was the, th uh, the flood, did it really happen? I think there's a lot of evidence, I mean, just on the science side, we'll just leave the text aside for a moment, that there seems to be both anthropological evidence and some scientific evidence to me that there's something behind all these stories. Even if you don't believe the Bible, you've got to admit there's something going on here. Was it global or was it some massive scale? Some Christians think it was a massive scale. In fact, 
Orthodox Jews today, a lot of Orthodox Jewish understanding, and they certainly believe the Bible's inspired, understand it to be a flood of that part of the world and that God was doing something with that specific group of people. In any case, I think it's very hard to, to dismiss the idea of a flood and say this is a mythical story, but it's also very difficult to provide scientific proof of everything that Genesis wants to say. Well, let me pause there and see what questions you have. Again, the text isn't conclusive, but you can see that there have been plenty of interesting speculation about this through time. Question? During the flood, were all the fish killed? During the flood, were all the fish killed? It's a question that the text leaves open to us. Uh, I personally think that uh, Noah was a fly fisherman, and I think that there was really good fishing during the flood. People who understand this, I mean, how would I know? The text doesn't indicate, but the story indicates from God that he is going to recreate everything. And so a very literal reading of it would say that they too died. And they died in the flood from a variety of reasons. Fish are more susceptible, even though you go, well, how can you die when you've got a lot of water? Well, you and I all know that, that you, the fish can die in water. I mean, it happens today. It happens a lot because of the oxygenation of the water. And so without trying to get into the details, people who would say there's no reason to think that the text isn't literally so and all of those creatures died present some persuasive arguments for that. Other Christians would say, this is, this is not necessary that every single creature had to die, but it is certainly possible. So a great flood disrupts all kinds of microorganisms and even the fish. Was there rain as we know it before Noah? Was there rain before uh, Noah? One would presume so, even though the text doesn't happen to get into it. You know, Noah says, hi. It's Friday, really cold today, very drizzly. Might, you know, 50% chance of freezing rain. You know, the text doesn't say that, but the inference is clear that if they're making a, a living somehow from the land, that there, there would have been vegetation, obviously, and vegetation would imply that you have rain, etc. And there's no indication in the text that this rain is an unusual thing. Flood's a very unusual thing, but there's no indication that the rain is unusual. So purely a matter of inference, one would presume that, yes, the earth was functioning in some way before the time of Noah. Can you talk about who wrote the book of Genesis? Who wrote the book of Genesis? According to tradition, uh, long, long-standing tradition, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. When Moses, now we're fast-forwarding quite a bit to the book of Exodus and to about 1,400 years before Christ. We're now in what's called prehistory even the time before even Abraham. We're going to take up his story in a little bit, but we're way back here in time. But fast forward to a pretty fixed time in history, and I'm just going to use traditional dates here. A lot of interesting argument about this, but we'll just use the traditional dating. About 1400 B.C., Moses rescues the Israelites from Egypt. They go up on Mount Sinai. Remember, he goes up on the mountain, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, and Charlton Heston, I mean, Moses comes down from the mountain and you know, presents the law. Well, according to Jewish thinking, this is very interesting, that, that when he was up there, that he was, this was a kind of a miraculous thing. He gets to literally hear from God and he writes it down. That during the day, God gave him the, uh, he told him a lot of things. He didn't just give him the law. He also told him a lot of things. And so Moses, who wasn't there at Genesis, 
God said, this is what I want you to write down. Here's what I want you and me, by the way, all of my people throughout all the generations to know. Obviously, God didn't want us to know some things. We'd love it if he told us more details, like who, exactly who were the Nephilim and exactly what happened there, but he doesn't. But he told Moses what he wanted people to know, and so traditionally Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. More liberal scholars who want to look at this as a text, not an inspired text, that don't believe that there necessarily is a God or that uh, God spoke to people or revealed himself in any way, but see this as a purely human product over time. In the book of Genesis, it's common right now in scholarship to think of what's called the documentary hypothesis to identify four different authors of the book of Genesis and that this material has been put together. That's a fascinating idea. It's not a particularly Christian idea in the sense that it doesn't think a God entered this figure at all. It's an interesting idea, and if you have questions about it, we can talk about it. But generally, the understanding is that God revealed himself and that Moses wrote it down. If you don't think that God revealed himself and you think this is just something a bunch of guys wrote down, most scholars think it's the product of several centuries of editing and putting stories together. Needless to say, that view has a lot of difficulty because this book is remarkably consistent and clear for something that just a bunch of people slapped together. I know that because on my uh, high school history final, I did slap a bunch of things together from a bunch of authors, and it, it didn't read anything like this. Um, is there any truth to the idea that the ark is on Mount Ararat? The story of the flood says that the uh, ark came to rest, that this boat came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. And people today think there's an awful lot of, you're going to watch a lot of things on TV that make it sound like, well, of course, there it is. It's right there. If the Turkish government would let us go in, we'd find the ark. So just a couple of comments about that. A lot of speculation there. First of all, we don't actually know where the mountain was that it came to rest. People speculate, maybe some evidence here and there, but it's speculation that it's this mountain in Turkey. Okay? Then there's been further speculation that, you know, some of this age, 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 age old wood might still exist in some way. And so you're going to see a lot of things that talk about, could this be the ark? Maybe that's it. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that it is not known exactly where it came to rest. And those things are at best theories and at worst speculation. I'm just going to give you an editorial comment. It doesn't matter if you find the ark or not. It just doesn't make any difference. If you think that we need science to validate the Bible, that's, that's a difficult Christian position to hold to begin with. In other words, God doesn't say anywhere in there, by the way, I left the ark for you to look at. And it's carved in there. Noah was here, you know, I mean, in the end of the wood. Yeah. The Bible doesn't care about that, particularly. If God cared about that, I'm sure he would leave that evidence for us. But the text, I just want to point this out. I don't want to put expectations on the text that the text doesn't care about. In other words, let it be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say. It doesn't particularly want to be a piece of archaeology. So it doesn't surprise me. If we find the ark, great. If we don't find the ark, fine. That's not what this text wants to be. So, to answer the question, it's very interesting, but it's very speculative. Why did God wait so long before he had Moses document all of this? 
Why wait so long before he writes this down? Couple of reasons. Uh, this thing, this is all circulating as oral tradition. I don't know if you've really thought about it very much, but written, the written word, people's reading and writing and even writing in general doesn't come about for a long time. The time that we're talking about, there's no reason to believe that in the time of Noah that people wrote. I'm not even sure the internet existed then, but they certainly, there's no evidence that they wrote. How did they communicate? They communicated by orally transmitting these things, and that happened down through the centuries. And so I think one of the reasons, this is speculation, but I think one of the reasons is there's not much reason to give a written revelation to people who can't read. And so by the time of Moses, you see widespread use of writing and people can transmit things through the written word. So that, that's speculation, but that may very well be one reason. What I found to be true about God in general is he seems to do things at the right time when it makes sense to do that. But there's no sense writing things down if there isn't anybody to read it. So I think that's one of the reasons for that to happen. I have several questions that, um, about the idea that possibly it was a regional flood. Uh -huh. In your opinion, if it was a regional flood, were there people in other parts of the world that were left alive? The thought, if you think about this as being a regional flood, that actually solves a few little problems. I mean, in other words, again, and I want you to have your faith destroyed by this. The Bible just doesn't care to tell us the answers to a lot of these questions. God says, I've got a lot more important things I want to tell you. And in just a couple minutes, I want to turn to two of those that jump out of the flood story. But to answer that, one of the difficulties people have is if these giants are on the earth now, everybody's killed in the flood, why do you see other giants? They're called Rephaim and Anakim and Nephilim once later in history. Well, one of the ways people have speculated about this is, you know what, maybe it really was a regional flood. And so God is accomplishing his purposes in that, but there were some people who did live through the flood, who weren't involved in the flood, and they come back into play later in history. So that's one of the reasons people speculate that maybe it was a regional flood. And so these other people come into play. They become like the Canaanites later. In other words, not the people of God. They're not going to be in the Abraham line, but they're other people whom God left for his purposes. Again, that's speculation because the text doesn't say. But there are two schools of thought. One is global flood, everybody died, God completely started over with the ark. The other is partial flood, and God chose this group of people to impact the world. Is there any archeological evidence of the Nephilim or other giants? You know, that's a good question because you're gonna see a lot of stuff on the internet and even on television sometimes of big bones that have been found and these might be the giant people. There's no reputable evidence of that that I have ever seen. There are a lot of inter interesting internet hoaxes about that and you're gonna see some interesting pictures, but I'm not aware of anything that's ever been found that would validate that uh, archeologically. Doesn't mean that it's not there. You can't argue against what hasn't been dug up yet, but I'm not aware of anything at this point that's been validated. To, uh, to support that archaeologically. What about the canopy theory? Uh, canopy theory, time doesn't permit me to go into that very much, but it's an interesting idea. 
And just Google that on the internet and, and read about the canopy theory. It's an interesting idea. It's, I, I don't find it to be a compelling way to understand the book of Genesis, but I understand that there are people who do, and it, it tends to want, it's, it's a kind of an all-encompassing idea to explain the answers to some of these questions. I'll probably just leave it at that just for the interest of time. It's an interesting idea. Again, the text isn't clear enough, in my view, to say is, is that really the way it happened or not. Does that make sense? A lot of speculation. And speculation is interesting, but it's on a different level. And really what I'd say is I kind of turn the corner just a little bit is one thing I want you to take away from this, regardless of all the things we don't have answered, here's something really interesting that we do. There are so many flood stories around that clearly something has happened. The text is so adamant that God is doing something with humanity and he's using this flood to do it, that there's no question that there is a remnant in us of a memory of something that actually happened here. The Genesis account doesn't really want to be history. It I mean, it could be. If this happened, God could have written down, go there, look at that rock, and you'll find proof. I mean, if God's the God of the universe, he could do it. He doesn't care about that. He cares about something else. But the point is, is there's interesting evidence that all of humanity remembers this flood. And so God did something there. This is not history, but it's also not myth. Something happened here. Well, what does God want to say about what happened here? Well, I think he wants to say two really important things. In Genesis 6, he says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness on the earth and that inclination of, of man was evil. In other words, he's going to talk about us. He didn't care that much about the rocks and the trees and the fish. I mean, God loved the fish. We're all fishermen, right? But basically, what he really cares about is humanity. And we are the crowning creation of God, and we are the story of the Bible. It's the story of God and us. He said, The Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. That Hebrew word is the same word, if you remember back in the garden, when he said to Eve, he said, because you guys have disobeyed, you have to leave the garden, and from now on, you'll bear children in pain. Now look at God's reaction. I want you to notice this. This is not the reaction of all the other myths. Now here's a God who's just mad at people and says, you know what? I'm just mad. I've had enough. I'm just going to wipe you all out. That's not what this says. Isn't this fascinating? It said he was grieved over what's going on, and he felt pain. It's the same word. He says, you guys are going to have pain because of your sin. Now guess what? God didn't sin, but he too has pain. This isn't an angry tyrant who's having a tantrum and wipe out humanity. This is a parent who's grieved and suffering over a child who's gone astray. Now that's an image we can understand. The pain you feel. Some of us as parents, some of you have felt that pain so acutely of a child who's so off, and it's just that constant pain. That's exactly what the Scripture wants to say about the flood. It says that God is pained by this. He's in great pain. And you know what? That's a pointer to the gospel. Genesis, Revelation, all these things are going to tie together. This is a pointer to the gospel. Why does Jesus come to the earth? He comes and becomes a human being, and what does he do? He suffers. He feels our pain pain. The Bible says God is with us in our pain. This is the God who feels pain with us. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. If you think of God as so distant that he's just happy all the time, that he's impervious. 
This says he was very unhappy. He's very grieved and he felt deep pain because he loves us. And so you see this image of God as God has great, great uh, mercy and he has great pain. The second thing you see, though, is, but he still judges the earth, doesn't he? There is a flood. Even though he's pain, he feels this pain, he is going to do justice. He's going to deal with the sin problem. It's like those, again, this is not a great example, but it's probably one we can, we can uh, sympathize with, is if you have a child who's caught up in, God forbid, an addiction or something, you're going to feel very pain, but what is it you want to do? Do you want to go give them more drugs? Do you want to go help them destroy their life more? No. Even if it hurts them, you want to set things right. That's what God's doing. That's what the flood's really about. Is This is about God making a new beginning. This is about trying to heal humanity. It's not about punishing humanity. Because, he says, Noah, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all the life under heaven. But I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Now, that's interesting, because an angry God destroys the earth, turns his back on it, and said, I made you, I can make another one, just like you. But he doesn't abandon his creation. He finds one little positive thing. This guy, Noah, who is trying to follow him, and he says, you know what? I'm going to make this new and clean. And by the way, have you ever noticed that how he did that with the flood? I want you to see that pointing again to a more cosmic, spiritual thing. He's going to biologically cleanse the earth with this water. But how many of us were baptized as we died to sin and were raised to life? I, there's no mystery as to why you're baptized in water. Stop and think about it. If you're God, you said, look, Jesus is coming, and here's what I'm going to want you to do. I'm going to want you to stand on your head and twirl around three times, and then you're a Christian. I mean, that's silly, but God could do what he wants. Why do you think... We're dunked in water and pulled out of water. What does that mean? This is what that means. This is the tie-in. God says, I want you to remember what I did with water, that the old died and I brought something new to life out of it. That's the story of the flood. That's the story of baptism. The old person died. This is what Paul says in Romans. He said, as many of you were baptized into Christ died with him and were raised in newness of life. Baptism is a picture of the flood. It's God judging the sin and destroying it and preserving and renewing a newness of life. That's what Noah is. Noah is that little piece of obedience to God that he's going to bring back to life. You see the beauty of that? The flood event, I mean, leaving the science aside, I mean, that's very interesting in the speculation, but what does God really want to tell you in the flood? He said, I felt a lot of pain because I love you, and I did what needed to be done to eradicate sin and give you a new life, and Noah is that new life. You and I experienced that same thing. He said, your old life has to go, but I can make it new again. And here's the really powerful thing. Two powerful thoughts. God is not going to share space with our sin. Remember that sin, once we let it in, it takes over our house? He's not going to coexist with our sin. He's a God of great mercy. When you and I hurt, he's not there to judge us and be angry. He hurts. But he's not willing, to, he's not okay with our sin. So he's a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. 
And we demand that, frankly. We, we look around the world and we say, surely a just God will deal with this. And he says, I will. I'll deal with that sin and I'll deal with your sin. And we're going to destroy it. But he doesn't turn his back on us. All it takes is a little bit. This is why Jesus said, I want you, this is a curious little saying in the New Testament. He said to his disciples, guys, you don't have to have a lot of faith. If you had faith like a mustard seed, if you have that much faith, God can grow that into something huge. Do you, do you see what he's saying? He said, I don't need a big remnant. Noah's called, you're going to see this idea again and again, so I'm going to give you this term. It's called a remnant. You've got all these people on the earth, you've got all this sin, and there's this few people that are still faithful. And God takes that, that remnant, and he rebuilds with it. You and I don't have to be perfect. We don't have to say, sin is rampant in my house, God. I've got to go through all the rooms and get rid of all my sin before you're going to accept me. That's not this story, is it? What is this story? He said, I just found one righteous guy, and I can work with that. That's when he looks at you and me, and this is, this is such a powerful story of the gospel. He says, the same thing's true. Your house is full of sin, but I just need this much faith, and I can take that and fan it into flame. Isn't that encouraging? I want you to, when you look at the story of the flood, I want you to think about what God's really doing. He's not just mad, he's hurt. He's not just turning his back. He says, I'm going to jump in the middle of this, and we're going to fix this. I'm going to make it new, and I'm going to bring it to life. And the really encouraging thing is, that's what he does with you and me. So when you get down on yourself, and you think, you know what, I'm not walking in the way of God. I've strayed off the path. I want you to understand, don't for a moment think, I've got to clean it all up before I can go back. You just take a little bit back, and God says, I can take that. I'll take that remnant, and I'll fan it into flame, and I'll make you brand new. Are you not excited about that? That's a powerful lesson for us. That's what the flood is about. That's what the flood is about, is God redeeming humanity. It's a global story, and it's a personal story. So I want you to be encouraged about that. Well, as time goes on, you're probably going to ask, what happens with the new beginning? How does Noah and his, and his kids work out in the new earth? Did everything go really well? Well, interestingly enough, in our next lesson, God does two interesting things. He makes a covenant, a contract with humanity, which, by the way, Jews believe still applies to you and me. There are seven important commandments that he gives to Noah that Jews say you need to be following right now. Curious what they are? I'll tell you next time what you're supposed to be doing. And we'll talk about the Tower of Babel. What does that really mean, and did it really exist? That's what we'll do next time. Thanks, guys.